you're listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by DairyCam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the Uniform Services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa, and guest hosting today is Arthur Briggs. We are joined again by David to hear the first part of his story. You can go back and listen now to our previous episode. Welcome back, Dave and Art. For this portion, we're going to dive into the um, your experiences uh, while serving. So how were some of your expectations versus reality different while serving and in deployment? Well, my uh, this is David. Uh, my first deployment, I didn't know what to expect. This is the beginning of the war. Uh, I went over in uh, October of 2003, and that's when the war was really big over in Iraq. So expectations, I didn't. Nobody knew what was happening. Uh, once we got over there, we learned the routines, but you're always standing on guard. Uh, in other words, always looking over our backs, uh, looking what everyone else is doing also. So that was the worst deployment. I would say the worst deployment, but it wasn't, for me, it wasn't that bad. That's uh, really interesting. Uh, David, can you, can you for everybody uh, that's listening, you, where did you fly into? So uh, my first deployment, we we uh, did a we went to a mob site, uh, Fort Dix in New Jersey. So we actually trained down in the cold to fly into Kuwait. So it was it was snowing and raining when we flew out of Fort Dix, New Jersey, and we flew over to Kuwait. It was like I said, snowing and raining. So it was in the 30 degrees, 35 degree temperature here. We flew into Kuwait. It was 106 degrees. Totally different uh, ball game. So you flew uh, over so. Del- Delta American Airlines, took you over in luxury. How did you fly across the ocean? No, we flew We flew in a military uh, plane. Uh, it's a rented plane through... I'll say Delta. I, I'm not sure exactly who it was. It could have been Delta. It could have been JetBlue. It could have been one of them. But they, the military rents the big planes from one of the major airlines. Uh, they fly just the service members. Nobody else is on that plane but the service members and their gear. Uh, so we flew from New Jersey. I remember going to uh, Germany because they had to refuel in Germany. We had like a say four hour layover everyone had to get off the plane while they refuel they cleaned it and then we go back on the plane and fly the rest of the way and uh when we fly we obviously fly we leave at night uh landed over there and left left in germany at night to land in kuwait at night uh so it's harder for you know the people to see who's coming in and out but it was like a roughly 105 106 degrees over there so you know we're all bundled up from being cold to going over there and we're all hot and sticky and sweaty we get off 
the plane over there. We go to a camp in Kuwait and uh, we spent a couple of nights to get uh, acclimated with the weather. We did some some training at that camp down in Kuwait before we took a bus uh, that was being escorted by military personnel up to our camp up in Iraq. Uh, so, so, so was, what 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 is that like? As you are you're you're in camp uh, Buring or one of the camps down in Kuwait, and, and you're loading up a bus with a bunch of people from New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, and you're heading uh, north from Kuwait from a camp where it's relatively secure. What is going on in your brain? What is the general mood in the bus as you guys are taking off in this armed escort to go up? Uh, into Iraq. What's, what's that like? It was, uh, you know, I was at that time in my thirties, I was scared because, you know, we're, we're all carrying our rifles. We have full battle rattle, full number of rounds per soldier on us. And, uh, yeah, we're getting escorted, uh, from, Kuwait, the camp that we were at is no longer there. Uh, it closed down many, many years ago. And we drive up. The camp I was at at that time was Camp Buka. It was a detainee. Uh, it had a prison on it. So it was a camp inside a camp. And from where I was up to Camp Buka was like a, I'm going to say a two, just over two hour drive. So it wasn't that long, but we're driving in the bus. All the curtains are closed on the bus, so nobody could see who's actually in there. And everyone's trying to peek out. Everyone's trying to, you know, see what's out there. I I personally brought a camera, and you know, I I stuck the camera behind the cur uh, the curtain on the window and took some pictures to see where we were going. Uh, you know, we get to the camp. You know, as soon as we pull in, you know, we had to unload all the ammo out of our weapons. And then they brought us to the tents we were going to sleep in until uh, the next the unit that was there moved out of there. Their, uh, they had hard sh uh, shelters over there. So when they left, we moved out of the tents into the hard shelters. But, yeah, it was, it was uh, how do I want to put it? A lot of things go through your mind, like what's going to happen, you know, what are we doing, you know, where are the bad guys at that time? You know, we're all, everyone's thinking of everything that could go wrong will go wrong, but we made it through it. For sure. Uh, as you crossed over from Kuwait to Iraq, did they make an announcement? Did you see the berms as you drove by them? and acknowledged like, okay, I've gone from Kuwait, which is not at war, uh, to, to Iraq. I am now in a combat zone. Do you remember that moment or did you see oh, the yeah. berms? Oh yeah. The berms are, you know, eight, 10, 12 feet tall. Uh, there's a berm on the Kuwait side. Then there's a big ditch that's like eight or 10 feet deep. That's the whole length of Iraq and Kuwait. And then there's a, I don't know, about 30 foot, piece of uh sand dirt with uh chicken wire and uh concertina wire fence and then there's another ditch and then there's another berm on top of that on the iraq side so the when you go over the 
from Kuwait into Iraq, when you cross that fence line, you're in Iraq. So, yeah, I've got pictures of it uh, somewhere. It was uh, it was like, wow, here we are. We're doing this now. So kind can, of moment. Can you talk a little bit more? Because um, that's a term that I don't think I've ever really heard. Um, firm. Can you talk a little bit more about like what that is and yep. visualize it for us? A berm, a berm. What, what the berm we're talking about is a dirt pile that's anywhere from ten to twenty feet tall, just a big pile of dirt, uh, and it ran the whole length of Kuwait and Iraq. So if you look at the map and you look at Kuwait and uh, Iraq, that berm was in Kuwait. Then there was a chain link fence with Constantina wire that was electrified, you know, with a ditch in between that. And then there was another ditch and then another berm on the Iraqi side. Uh, it's just a tall dirt pile that runs the whole length. So nobody can just drive up and over it, you know, because they'll fall into the ditch or, you know, if they do make it past the first ditch, they get the electrified fence. It's uh, it's kind of like I, I watched wrestling as a kid. It's as as you're outside of the ring, you kind of go inside the ring, you know, uh, when you're you're getting into the battle zone. So you get up to your camp, you guys get settled. A bunch of people from New Hampshire, uh, Mass and Maine, and it's hot as Hades. And you're wearing yeah. you're wearing tank tank tops, shorts, and flip flops all the time. Kind of <laughs> no. just no. <laughs> No, you're wearing full uniform, full army uh, fatigues. You're wearing your boots, socks, you know, full. You have your blouse, your pants, and you have a T-shirt, and then you're wearing your vest. Uh, we had a, uh, you know, the bulletproof vests. We call them a flak vest. We were wearing them about 80% of the time while we were over there, even on the camp. Uh, and then you have a Kevlar, which is your hot hat, the bullet. It, it reflects the bullets. It's not a bulletproof hat, but uh, and yeah. So you're you we're over there sweating. I drank from day one until the day I left. I bet you I drank four or five gallons of water a day. You know that's how hot it was. You're constantly sweating. You're constantly you know changing your t-shirt. You know because I was sweating so much. To and it took it took quite a while to get acclimated to the weather and the when i went in iraq it was everyone that deployed with me was from new hampshire uh on that camp and then the people that were leaving were actually from florida so they were more used to the little hotter weather than we were for sure for sure uh i that has to be two contrasting units, right? Florida and New Hampshire, and uh, I'm sure that was, I'm sure that was fun with uh, interchanges as well. Um, so, what was it like being in Iraq for your tour there? Uh, did you did you engage with the enemy? Was there uh, gunfire? Did you experience mortars? Uh, did you uh, were you constantly on edge, or were you ever able to take a take a deep breath in and, and not worry about anything, or did you literally have to worry? the entire time you were there about your life? We didn't have to worry every minute, okay? The camp we were at was kind of a safer camp than the other camps, but our mission changed my 
my team that I was on, our mission changed every week. So we were on a five-week rotation. One week we would do uh, what we call a QRF, quick uh, reaction force. So there was a bunch of Humvees with a bunch of guys in it that would just drive around the camp to make sure not, no one was coming towards the camp or nothing out there. So we were doing QRF one week. Next week, we would be uh, up in the towers overlooking the desert to make, you know, to call in if anything's coming in ahead of time. The week after, we would do uh, escorting from my camp down to Kuwait or my camp up to another camp uh, in in Iraq. We did uh, deten- uh, detainee ops because we went over as military MPs, military police. We did detainee ops. We did, uh, you know, we had one day every week or every 10 to 12 days, we would get one day off that where we weren't on a duty and we got to stay in our tent or our hard shelter and play, you know, play cribbage or card games or just, if someone just wanted to sleep, they'd just sleep. Uh, I have my couple of the missions I was on going up north to, Mosul and uh, Baghdad and a camp called Scania. We were, we got fired at, you know, we, we fired weapons at them. They fight, well, they fired weapons at us. We fired back. Uh, Yeah, we were, we were in, if you remember the, at that time, it was called the green zone, the green triangle. We had to go up in that area. So we were on edge when we're up on the, on the road, we're on edge all the time. Uh, and do you forget about it? No, it's always deep down inside. You know, you always, you know, something might trigger you to remember that time. Uh, but, you know, did I feel safe with the guys I was with? My team members, yes, I felt safe. I trusted them, you know, and the funny thing, uh, I can't say the funny thing is my license plate is IGY6. I've got your back, okay? I've got your sex. And I, I like that license plate because I had my my buddies' backs and they had mine at all times. Yeah, that's incredible. It had to be neat to have a brotherhood from uh, your local area in New Hampshire. That's something that's really neat about uh, National Guard and reserve units is that they usually pull from the local area. So that, that had to be yeah. really interesting. Yep. It, uh, it was. And like I said, it was all New Hampshire people that went. And like my buddy Brad, he's been out since uh, the year after we got back from Iraq. And he lives in Colorado. Him and I still talk uh, on a regular basis. You know, that's how close we became uh, friends. You know, holidays. I've had him over in my house. He's, he's been, I've been over to his house uh, before we moved out to Colorado. and. You know, just just last week I talked to him. Just to, I just called, just out of the blue, just thinking about him. And hey, how you doing? Checking in, and he does the same thing to me. No, it's fantastic. How important are those relationships in your mental, emotional health as somebody that you know we're 15 years past plus uh, the time that you were in Iraq? How important is it to stay connected to your friends that you served with? It's uh, very important. You know, because they went through the same thing you went through. And, you know, when you're over there for a year, 18 months, you get to know the person like your brother. 
you know, and I treat, I treat both of my guys that were on my team, like my brother, I would give them the shirt off my back if they asked for it, you know, and that's how close we've gone. Uh, I could talk to him. Like I just went through a divorce a couple of years ago and my second uh, divorce. And I called him up for, you know, advice, just someone to talk to. And he's, he, he listens, but he answers the correct way. Okay. He's not going to give me any BS and he'll, he'll talk to you and I'll do that. He does the same. I do the same for him. You know, if he ever needs anything, I'd talk to me about anything. I'd sit there and listen to him. Yeah, that's a, it's an incredible bond that happens uh, when you serve faithfully with somebody, especially in a high stress environment. So David, I'm listening to you. You, you, you went up in a bus, you got to the camp, you guys are a national guard unit and you're given a prison and you're doing detainee ops, which is like a prison for, but not, we're not holding any prisoners. They're detainees. Uh, you have, you're a mechanic, you're driving Humvees around, you're taking patrols north to Missoula, and you're also standing guard on the berm or on the guard shack, and you're, you're doing QRF. Like, those are all uh, incredible, you know, you're talking about MP, you're talking about infantrymen, you're talking about transportation, you're talking about uh, ordnance uh, maintenance guy. Exactly. How'd you, end up, how'd you end up doing all that? You're just a mechanic, right? So I'm a mechanic by trade, but in my whole life, I've been a mechanic. But the nice thing with the National Guard is all the members in the National Guard, we're considered M-Day soldiers one week in a month, two weeks a year. They have jobs doing anything, anything from lawyers, doctors, uh, mechanics, truck drivers, uh, carpenters, plumbers, electricians. So we going through the training for each one because it wasn't they just threw us in there they trained us uh we had a right seat and left seat what they, what i mean by left seat right seat is we watched them do their job for uh up to two weeks and then we would do their job while they're watching us before they left so there was a overlap of uh, the two units teaching each other on what to do, you know, our, our tents, you know, fixing, fixing the Humvees, you know, we had a maintenance, uh, platoon that that's all they did is maintenance. They, most of them didn't even leave the camp. They stayed on the camp, but me, even though uh, I was maintenance, I was put on a team, uh, an MP team as a, uh, E5 at that time to, be in charge of the other soldiers. So that's why I didn't do maintenance at that time, but we learned from each other on how to do different things. And they don't just throw it at you and tell you to do it. There's always someone there to uh, walk you through it. Right. Right. That's, that's a good for us to understand. Um, I want to give you a chance, kind of like open, open it up to you. Is there anything like in your combat experience that you'd want to share that you'd want like people to know about uh, from from your story? It's uh, it's a challenging, you know, being deployed. It's challenging on each individual person. Each person is different. Uh, so as long as they have someone to talk to and 
know that, you know, there's somebody that's out there that's gone through the same thing or uh, someone to talk to, like I said, that's the important thing, you know, is just communication. You know, it's, it's a hard, you know, it's hard to say, you know, cause I've done it three times. So it's like three different deployments from three different countries. It's just natural to me now, but from a fresh soldier coming in, what we call a private E2, E3, E4, you know, they're leaving home for the first time. So it's like the senior ranking uh, enlisted and offices, hopefully, or, you know, and which I know they do, they're, they're teaching them and talking to them through it. And if they have issues, just letting them know, hey, you have something to talk to, come and, come and ask me. Do you feel like having an uncle who was a Green Beret during Vietnam, um, having him talk to you and tell him stories helped you be able to kind of have Uh, that? Yeah, his stories helped me a little bit. But the biggest thing that helped me after my first deployment is coming home and talking to my grandfather, which I never even knew he was in the military until after because he never talked about it. You know, my grandfather served in World War II. He oh. he was born in Germany, came over here in 41. So he served for the German army and then came over here and became a captain and served for the U.S. Army. And he wow. opened up and talked to me. So that is, after I talking to him, it's like, wow, we had it. I can't say easy, but we had it a lot better than what they had it. It's back in, you know. Yeah, I was having a conversation with um, my parents recently about my great grandfather, who I was lucky enough to know. He served, um, he lied about his age, got into the military right before I think he was like 15 or 16, um, and served in. Uh, the the family lore is he served in every branch of the military during World War II. Um, wow. I don't know how true that is, but he he's he served. And my mom was telling me how because um, we were talking about the how Vietnam the veterans from that era just had a whole different uh, viewpoint with the way that they came back, what they did over there, um, comparing it to what people today, how they serve. Um, but World War II, they were held to almost a hero status. So my great grandfather shared a lot of stories with my mom. Um, yeah. Hear that often with, especially I think Vietnam veterans. Um, and then even today's veterans, there's a lot of people that are very unwilling to talk about anything or talk about their experience. Yeah, I feel I, for me personally, I feel that, you know, and I don't do it all the time, but if it starts to bother me, I, I'll talk to someone about it, if you know what I mean. And it doesn't have to, it, it could be my buddy, Brad, it could be my son. You know, I get a 28 year old son and I've literally sat at my house having a, a scotch or a whiskey, just talking to him about a couple of things, you know, that was just, I was thinking of that just got on the on a subject and, you know, help me work through that, the issue I had during the day, just talking about it. Yeah. But like you were saying, my grand, my grandfather was World War II, you know, they had, they were all heroes coming back. And then like my father going through Vietnam, 
They didn't like the people when they come back. They didn't like them. You know, they were calling them all kinds of names. And now today, you know, luckily during the first war we got back, there wasn't a lot of help out there. But after my second and third deployment, there's so many organizations out there to uh, help out soldiers. You know, yeah. just like the Homeland Heroes, you know, what Julie does. And, you know, there's just so many organizations that are trying to help out, which is nice. What were, so you, you've served or you've been deployed three times. Um, yep. What were some of the biggest differences with each deployment? So when I got back from my first deployment, uh, there wasn't a lot of places that were helping out for vets. Okay. Uh, I feel, you know, a lot of organizations, like I'll use the VA for an example. I don't think they did their job correctly during, after I get back from my first appointment. Uh, I don't think the, you know, the reintegration period was uh, thought of because the war just started and, you know, people are coming back after being gone and they didn't know what to expect. You know, after my second deployment in 2011, when I got back, you know, they, we had, uh, there was a program and I believe it's through the VA now, the yellow ribbon program. It's a, I believe it's through the VA and the U S military. And they had, we had a yellow ribbon, uh, weekend where they brought all the families that deployed all the soldiers all together up in North Conway. They rented the whole entire hotel, all the families. It was free for all the soldiers and everything. And they walked us through different steps. They talked about financing. They talked about uh, communication, reintegrating with family, uh, talked about you know, finances, they talk, you know, they just, they went through so much, so much stuff in a very short time. And it helped out a lot of people because the people knew where to, where to call, where to, where to go if they needed any kind of help. And the same thing with my, my last deployment, I got back and my last deployment to UAE, United Arab Emirates, it was a training mission, even though it was a deployment, it was, we were over there training the Emiratis on some of the stuff that the U.S. was selling them. So that deployment, I get back from that and we had the same thing, another yellow ribbon program. And there was just a lot more stuff, information given out by different organizations, you know, for the veterans to help out throughout the whole time. So a lot of diversity in like what your missions were while you deployed, right? So the actual yep. deployments, the deployments themselves, if I understand correctly, one was a training mission. One was actually going into Iraq and assisting with OIF. And then yep. uh, I, I, the other one is you were actually in Kuwait. Is that right? Yep. My second one, I was in Kuwait and I was doing maintenance the whole time. I was actually a maintenance warrant officer. And so I was doing maintenance and I was also the battalion safety officer as an officer. They gave me an additional duty. Uh, but that, that deployment, you know, we had guys 
from New Hampshire here because it was pretty much the whole state of New Hampshire that deployed for the National Guard, over 2,000 soldiers. We ran all five camps in Kuwait at that time. And we had guys going to Iraq, you know, the draw route, the uh, closing of Iraq, bringing, closing the camps. So we had guys going up there, guys and girls going up there and escorting, you know, trucks back with the U.S. Army gear and equipment and everything we brought up there over the, you know, 15 years that we were in Iraq at that time. Yeah. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm a, David, I'm a transplant. I'm not from New Hampshire or Mass. Exactly. And, uh, you guys are, are a different breed of humanity. God loves you, and I do too. Uh, but there's got to be some hilarious story uh, that you want to share about your time hanging out with a bunch of these New Englanders. So, I, I actually have a question regarding that. So, you yeah. served from 2003 to 2005. Yep. So October of 03 to February of 05. So so just over a year, a few Boston events that happened over that time period. Um, The Boston Red Sox, Boston Red Sox won in 2004. And then the New England Patriots went to the Super Bowl in 2003, 2004. That was a great Super Bowl. Go Giants. You're in the wrong County. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, so what, like, what was that like? Did during you guys- that time, yeah, during that time, we did not have the regular TV over there that, you know, we did in Kuwait or Iraq or in UAE. So they had the Armed Force Network. It's a TV thing from the Army and all the Armed Forces puts on this TV show. So I heard on, because uh, we had a computer lab over there that we could email back and forth. I heard that the Red Sox won the World Series then. We didn't watch it until two days later. So it's, you know, it was old news, but it was still new news for us. You know, uh, when I was in Kuwait in 2010-11, we had, you know, internet, we had phones, we had, you know, we I could watch TV on my uh, computer if I wanted to through the internet. So every everything changed. And then like when I was in UAE, uh, I got to see all of UAE, Dubai. I got to go up to the, uh, it's called the Burj Khalif, the tallest building in the world. Oh, wow. Okay. So like that, my last deployment, I got to see, you know, a lot of stuff. And when, when you look at people talk about in UAE, they uh, they drive around with a, a tiger in their car. Yeah, they do. I've seen it firsthand. Okay, you see million dollar what we call hundred thousand dollar car, million dollar cars just sitting on the road because they break down and they just leave them there. Ferraris, Lamborghinis, just on the side of the road, you know, because they have so much money. Uh, you know, the largest mall in the world is in UAE. It's at the bottom of the Burj Khalif. It's five floors high, and each floor would take you a whole day just to walk through. Wow. And in the center of that is a, they have an ice skating rink in the center, a full-size ice skating rink. Or you can go down the road to the other mall where they have a indoor ski slope in the desert. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah, I've seen from the worst, 
to the best through my whole deployments. You know, I messed up. I've seen 2003, 2004, your Patriots did actually win the Super Bowl. I was thinking of your undefeated season where the Giants beat you in the Super Bowl. But uh, yeah, they beat the Carolina Panthers. So you missed the Super Bowl and the World Series? Yep. We watched it. We watched it the day after or two days later, but we heard that they won, you know? That's so. awesome. Well, if yeah. there's anything to miss in the continental United States, it's Boston winning another championship. Nobody really cares about that. Wow. So. wow. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so did you have any funny stories about your whole experience with all these New Englanders in, in all these situations? What's your funniest one, if you, if you got one to share? And so we all get along, you know. Uh, I don't have really any funny stories, you know, that I can think of off the top of my head. It's just we, you know, we all got along. We were the unit integrity, I, I would say. We were very close. All the units were close with each other, and you know, the only uh, only thing I could think of is like when I was in Iraq, somebody tried keeping a puppy. You know that there was the wild dogs that they just let roam, or somebody picked up a uh, not a porcupine, a uh, it rolls up into a little ball, a hedgehog. You know, there was a hedgehogs out there or someone trying to catch, catch a, a lizard that, you know, they don't realize that the lizard can run 10 times faster than they can, you know, <laughs> just watching someone trying to run after a lizard, you know, and I'm not talking nothing. I'm not talking these three, four inch things. I'm talking about, you know, the lizards that are four or five feet long that live in the desert, <laughs> you know, and some of the other kind of cool things we did is you know i'm sure you've heard about them the scorpion spiders uh the uh, the campbell spiders and then the scorpions are all over the deserts over there we used to pick them up with uh jaws and put them in a wooden box and see which one would survive and it's a lose-lose situation because the camel spider would be eating the uh scorpion and the scorpion stabbing the camel spider so they both died you know oh but <laughs> the things you'll do it. for fun <laughs> exactly david t t yeah. tell everybody about a camel spider uh th these oh. mythical creatures uh, i'm sure that somebody will want to know like I what is that I know. <laughs> you know you see the pictures on the internet they are not two feet long you know the biggest one i've ever seen was like six or seven inches long you know uh but they do, they have four big fangs in it. And when they do bite on you, they don't, they don't use them fangs to chomp on you. They use them to open you up and they eat. Oh. The fangs open up and then they eat from the inside out. <laughs> now I'm all set. Yeah, yeah so a, a camel spider is uniquely called a camel spider because they will walk in the shadow of a camel. And so if you're a human being, you cast a shadow a camel spider will jump in your shadow and walk next to you. And if you're, you don't know it and you seem to look down and see this, you know, eight inch, six inch, five inch, heck, even a three inch spider walking next to you. And by the way, they can jump a little bit. And they, ju they jump, they can jump up to three to four feet. 
the bigger they are, the longer they can jump. And that's that's why they call them camel spiders because they used to, and not just walk in their shadow, they used to jump on the back of the camels on their legs and grab a hold and, you know, take a ride somewhere. Well, those are, um, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. So thanks for that, guys. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, on that note, I think um, that concludes episode two. <laughs> um, yeah. So thanks for joining us for the second part of Dave's story and all those fun spider stories. Uh, for part three, tune into the next episode of the Homeland Heroes Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.